Part two of Henry James at Work by Theodora Bosanquet. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Part two. Four. In the autumn of 1907, when I began to tap the Remington typewriter at Henry James's dictation, he was engaged on the arduous task of preparing his novels and tales for the definitive New York edition, published in 1909. Since it was only between breakfast and luncheon that he undertook what he called inventive work, he gave the hours from half-past ten to half-past one to the composition of the prefaces, which are so interesting a feature of the edition. In the evenings he read over again the work of former years, treating the printed pages like so many proof-sheets of extremely corrupt text. The revision was a task he had seen in advance as formidable. He had cultivated the habit of forgetting past achievements almost to the pitch of a sincere conviction that nothing he had written before about 1890 could come with any shred of credit through the ordeal of a critical inspection. On a morning when he was obliged to give time to the selection of a set of tales for a forthcoming volume, he confessed that the difficulty of selection was mainly the difficulty of reading them at all they seem he said so bad until i have read them that i can't force myself to go through them except with a pen in my hand altering as i go the crudities and ineptitudes that to my sense deform each page unfamiliarity and adverse prejudice are rare advantages for a writer to bring to the task of choosing among his works for henry james the prejudice might give way to half-reluctant appreciation as the unfamiliarity passed into recognition but it must be clear to every reader of the prefaces that he never lost the sense of being paternally responsible for two distinct families for the earlier brood acknowledged fruit of his alliance with romance he claimed indulgence on the ground of their youthful spontaneity their confident assurance their rather touching good faith one catches echoes of a plea that these elderly youngsters may not be too closely compared to their inevitable disadvantage with the richly endowed the carefully bred the highly civilized and sensitized children of his second marriage contracted with that wealthy bride experience attentive readers of the novels may perhaps find the distinction between the two groups less remarkable than it seemed to their writer they may even wonder whether the second marriage was not rather a silver wedding with the old romantic mistress cleverly disguised as a woman of the world the different note was possibly due more to the substitution of dictation for pen and ink than to any profound change of heart but whatever the reason their author certainly found it necessary to spend a good deal of time working on the earlier tales before he considered them fit for appearance in the company of those composed later some members of the elder family he entirely cast off not counting them worth the expense of completely new clothes others he left in their place more from a necessary though deprecated respect for the declared taste of the reading public than because he loved them for their own sake it would for instance have been difficult to exclude daisy miller from any representative collection of his work yet the popularity of the tale had become almost a grievance 
to be acclaimed as the author of daisy miller by persons blandly unconscious of the wings of the dove or the golden bowl was a reason among many for henry james's despair of intelligent comprehension confronted repeatedly with daisy he felt himself rather in the position of some grand dame who with a jewel case of sparkling diamonds is constrained by her admirers always to appear in the simple string of moonstones worn at her first dance from the moment he began to read over the earlier tales he found himself involved in a highly practical examination of the scope and limits of permissible revision poets as he pointed out have often revised their verse with good effect why should the novelist not have equal license the only sound reason for not altering anything is a conviction that it cannot be improved it was henry james's profound conviction that he could improve his early writing in nearly every sentence not to revise would have been to confess to a loss of faith in himself and it was not likely that the writer who had fasted for forty years in the wilderness of british and american misconceptions without yielding a scrap of intellectual integrity to editorial or publishing tempters should have lost faith in himself but he was well aware that the game of revision must be played with a due observance of the rules he knew that no novelist can safely afford to repudiate his fundamental understanding with his readers that the tale he has to tell is at least as true as history and the figures he has set in motion at least as independently alive as the people we see in offices and motor-cars he allowed himself few freedoms with any recorded appearances or actions although occasionally the temptation to correct a false gesture to make it right was too strong to be resisted we have a pleasant instance of this correction in the second version of the american at her first appearance the old marquise de bellegarde had acknowledged the introduction of newman by returning his handshake with a sort of british positiveness which reminded him that she was the daughter of the earl of st dunstan's in the later edition she behaves differently newman came sufficiently near to the old lady by the fire to take in that she would offer him no handshake madame de bellegarde looked hard at him and refused what she did refuse with a sort of a british positiveness which reminded him that she was the daughter of the earl of st dunstan's there were good reasons why the marquise should have denied newman a welcoming handshake her attitude throughout the book was to be consistently hostile and should never have been compromised by the significantly british grip yet it is almost shocking to see her snatching back her first card after playing it for so many years she was to perform less creditable actions than shaking hands with an innocent american as her progenitor knew very well he invited his readers in the preface to the american to observe the impossible behaviour of the noble bellegarde family but he realized that since they had been begotten in absurdity the bellegardes could under no stress of revision achieve a very solid humanity the best he could do for them was to let a faint consciousness flush the mind of valentine the only detached member of the family 
in the first edition valentin warned his friend of the bellegarde peculiarities with the easy good faith of the younger henry james under the spell of the magic word europe my mother is strange my brother is strange and i verily believe i am stranger than either old trees have queer cracks old races have odd secrets to this statement he added in the revised version we're fit for a museum or a balzac novel a comparable growth of ironic perception was allowed to roderick hudson whose comment on roland's admission of his heroically silent passion for mary garland it's like something in a novel was altered to it's like something in a bad novel five but the legitimate business of revision was for henry james neither substitution nor rearrangement it was the demonstration of values implicit in the earlier work the retrieval of neglected opportunities for adequate renderings it was as he explained in his final preface all sensibly as if the clear matter being still there even as a shining expanse of snow spread over a plain my exploring tread for application to it had quite unlearned the old pace and found itself naturally falling into another which might sometimes more or less agree with the original tracks but might also often or very nearly break the surface at other places what was thus predominantly interesting to note at all events was the high spontaneity of these deviations and differences which become thus things not of choice but of immediate and perfect necessity necessity to the end of dealing with the quantities in question at all on every page the act of rereading became automatically one with the act of rewriting and the revised parts are just those rigid conditions of reperusal registered so many close notes as who should say on the particular vision of the matter itself that experience had at last made the only possible one these are words written with the clear confidence of the artist who in complete possession of his faculties had no need to bother himself with doubts as to his ability to write better at the end of a lifetime of hard work and varied experience than at the beginning he knew he could write better his readers have not always agreed with his own view they have denounced the multiplication of qualifying clauses the imposition of a system of punctuation which although rigid and orderly occasionally fails to act as a guide to immediate comprehension of the writer's intention and the increasing passion for adverbial interpositions adjectives are the sugar of literature and adverbs the salt was henry james's reply to a criticism which once came to his ears it must be admitted that the case for the revised version relies on other merits than simplicity or elegance to make its claim good it is not so smooth nor so easy nor on the whole so pretty as the older form but it is nearly always richer and more alive abstractions give place to sharp definite images loose vague phrases to close locked significances we can find a fair example of this in the madonna of the future a tale first published in eighteen seventy nine in the original version one of the sentences runs 
his professions somehow were all half professions and his allusions to his work and circumstances left something dimly ambiguous in the background in the new york edition this has become his professions were practically somehow all masks and screens and his personal allusions as to his ambiguous background mere wavings of the dim lantern in some passages it would be hard to deny a gain of beauty as well as of significance there is for instance a sentence in the earlier account of newman's silent renunciation of his meditated revenge in the cathedral of notre dame he sat a long time he heard far-away bells chiming off at long intervals to the rest of the world in the definitive edition of the american the passage has become he sat a long time he heard far-away bells chiming off into space at long intervals the big bronze syllables of the word a paragraph from four meetings a tale worked over with extreme care will give a fair idea of the general effect of the revision it records a moment of the final meeting when the helplessly indignant narrator is watching poor caroline ministering to the vulgar french cocotte who has imposed herself on the hospitality of the innocent little new englander at this moment runs the passage of eighteen seventy nine caroline spencer came out of the house bearing a coffee-pot on a little tray i noticed that on her way from the door to the table she gave me a single quick vaguely appealing glance i wondered what it signified i felt that it signified a sort of half-frightened longing to know what as a man of the world who had been in france i thought of the countess it made me extremely uncomfortable i could not tell her that the countess was very possibly the runaway wife of a little hairdresser i tried suddenly on the contrary to show a high consideration for her the particular vision registered on reperusal reveals states of mind much more definite than these wonderings and longings and vague appeals our hostess moreover at this moment came out of the house bearing a coffee-pot and three cups on a neat little tray i took from her eyes as she approached us a brief but intense appeal the mute expression as i felt conveyed in the hardest little look she had yet addressed to me of her longing to know what as a man of the world in general and of the french world in particular i thought of these allied forces now so encamped on the stricken field of her life i could only act however as they said at north verona quite impenetrably only make no answering sign i couldn't intimate much less could i frankly utter my inward sense of the countess's probable past with its measure of her virtue value and accomplishments and of the limits of consideration to which she could properly pretend i couldn't give my friend a hint of how i myself personally saw her interesting pensioner whether as the runaway wife of a too jealous hairdresser or of a too morose pastry-cook say whether as a very small bourgeoise in fine who had vitiated her case beyond patching up or even some character of the nomadic sort less edifying still i couldn't let on by the jog of a shutter as it were a hard informing ray 
and then washing my hands of the business turn my back forever i could on the contrary but save the situation my own at least for the moment by pulling myself together with a master hand and appearing to ignore everything but that the dreadful person between us was a grand dame any one genuinely interested in the how and whence and why these intenser shades of experience come into being and insist on shining will find it a profitable exercise to read and compare the old and the new versions of any of the novels or tales first published during the seventies or eighties such a reader will be qualified to decide for himself between the opinion of a bold young critic that all the works have been subjected to a revision which in several cases notably daisy miller and four meetings amounts to their ruin and their writer's confidence that i shouldn't have breathed upon the old catastrophes and accidents the old wounds and mutilations and disfigurements wholly in vain i have prayed that the finer air of the better form may sufficiently seem to hang about them and gild them over at least for readers however few at all curious of questions of air and form six explanatory prefaces and elaborate revisions short stories and long memories were far from being the complete tale of literary labor during the last eight years of henry james's life a new era for english drama was prophesied in nineteen o seven led by miss horniman advocates of the repertory system were marching forward capturing one by one the intellectual centres of the provinces in london repertory seasons were announced in two west end theatres actor managers began to ask for non-commercial plays and when their appeal reached henry james it met with a quick response the theatre had both allured and repelled him for many years and he had already been the victim of a theatrical misadventure his assertions that he wrote plays solely in the hope of making money should not i think be taken as the complete explanation of his dramas it is pretty clear that he wrote plays because he wanted to write them because he was convinced that his instinct for dramatic situations could find a happy outlet in plays because writing for the stage is a game rich in precise rules and he delighted in the multiplication of technical difficulties and because he lived in circles more addicted to the intelligent criticism of plays than to the intelligent criticism of novels the plays he wrote in the early nineties are very careful exercises in technique they are derived straight from the light comedies of the parisian stage with the difference that in the nineties for all their advertised naughtiness there were even stricter limits to the free representation of parisian situations on english stages than there are to-day in the reprobate a play successfully produced a few years ago by the stage society the lady whose hair has changed from black to red and from red to gold is the centre of the drama she holds the key to the position but all her complicating effect depends upon the past pasts being allowed on every stage comparative license of reference 
the compromising evidence is all a matter of old photographs and letters and the play loses in vividness whatever it may gain in respectability nobody knew better than the author that the reprobate was not a good play terror of being cut forbade him to work on a subject of intrinsic importance with another hour guaranteed a playwright might attempt anything but he does not get his hour and he will probably begin by missing his subjects he takes in his dread of complication a minor one and its heavy odds that the minor one with the habit of small natures will prove thankless other early plays had been converted into novels or tales and so published one of these written originally for miss ellen terry but never produced by her had appeared as an incongruous companion to the turn of the screw in the volume entitled the two magics a few attentive readers had seen the dramatic possibilities of covering end and when it was suggested to henry james that he should convert it into a three-act comedy for production by mr forbes robertson as he was then and miss gertrude elliott he willingly consented flying under a new flag as the high bid the play was produced in london in february nineteen o nine but only for a series of matinees the prodigious success of the passing of the third floor back precluding the possibility of an evening for any other production under the same management under the inspiration of the repertory movement other material was recast for acting the other house was redictated as a tragedy owen wingrave became the saloon a one-act play produced by miss gertrude kingston in nineteen ten finally an entirely new three-act comedy the outcry was written round the highly topical subject of the sale of art treasures to rich americans it was not produced during henry james's life at the time when it should have been rehearsed he was ill and the production was postponed on his recovery he went to the united states for a year and when he came back the day of repertory performances had died in a fresh night of stars when the outcry was given by the stage society in nineteen seventeen it was evident that the actors were embarrassed by their lines for by nineteen o nine when the play was written the men and women of henry james could talk only in the manner of their creator his own speech assisted by the practice of dictating had by that time become so inveterately characteristic that his questions to a railway clerk about a ticket or to a fishmonger about a lobster might easily be recognized as coined in the same mint as his addresses to the academic committee of the royal society of literature apart from this difficulty of enunciating the lines the outcry has all the advantages over the earlier plays the characters are real and they act from adequate motives the solution of the presented problem which requires like most of the author's solutions a change of heart is worked out with admirable art without any use of the mechanical shifts and stage properties needed in the reprobate it is not very difficult to believe that if henry james had been encouraged twenty years earlier to go on writing plays he might have made a name as dramatist but the faithful may be forgiven for rejoicing that the playwright was sacrificed to the novelist and critic
End of part two.